Here is a sermon message from Somerville Community Baptist Church. To hear more sermons like this, please visit ilovescbc.org. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Have you ever heard this phrase from your children? Or have you ever remembered saying this when you are younger? I remember saying this a lot when I was younger because I was a boy with no patience. If I was hungry, I had to be fed. If I felt bored, I had to be entertained. And especially if I was going someplace else by car and it took longer than half an hour, I constantly find myself complaining to my father by saying this. Are we there yet, Dad? Are we there yet, Dad? Now, this phrase, are we there yet, that implies that we have started our journey from point A, and we are heading to our destination, point B. We haven't quite arrived there yet, but we are living in, in between, right? And we are running out of our patience, and we just can't stand anymore, and we're complaining this. And this is not just for children's phrase, isn't it? How often you and I found ourselves saying this phrase in our life. Think about our spiritual life. We have begun our spiritual journey because Christ has come and defeated death and sin. Now we are the recipients of God's grace and mercy and love through the birth and ministry and crucifixion and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are living in the time of grace. The Holy Spirit is within us and resides us and guiding us and convicts us and encourages us and empowers us. But how often we find ourselves saying this phrase, God, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I prayed this so long. You haven't answered me. Well, I believe you, but look what I'm ended up being. Because we're running out of our patience. We don't want to have this long wait time in our lives. I recently read an article that will talk about how they resolved customer complaints about their waiting time on baggage claim area at the Houston airport. People have been complaining to the airport that the baggage claim time took too long that they have to wait. People get off their planes, they go from the terminal to their baggage claim area and standing and waiting for their bag to come on the conveyor belt. By the way, it's always interesting to observe how people are waiting, um, you know, those baggage area. People are right up there, ready to tackle, soon as they see their baggage before anybody else gets them, right? And as almost always, your bag don't come out quickly. So you have to wait. You have to wait for five, 10, sometimes 15, even longer, and it feels like it takes forever. And you started complaining about those waiting time. Anybody ever experienced that before? So as the airport trying to deal with these customers who constantly making complaints, and they tried to do some researches and came up with some solutions. The first solution that they had uh, to shorten the wait time for baggage claim area was that they hired more handlers. They thought by having more people handling bags and giving them out, that will make a difference. And it did. 
it made a difference. They were able to shorten the wait time for those bags to come out. But strangely enough, they still found out that people were complaining about the wait time. They were still complaining that they would get there and have to wait for the bags. Well, what they did also find out in this whole research was that no one was complaining about the walking distance from the terminal to the baggage claim area, which took about five minutes there. So here's what they did. They simply moved the arrival gates back farther so that people would have to walk a lot longer to the baggage claim area. So by the time they get to the baggage claim area, most of the baggage are already out there. And as a result, people not only stop complaining about those waiting time, but they start complimenting highly. You see, what was fascinating about this whole story and this research is this. It is not about how long you are waiting, and it's what you do while you are waiting. That makes a difference. It's not about how long you are waiting there. It is about what you are doing while you are waiting. That makes a big difference. Both cases took about the same time for people to claim their baggage. But the second case, their solution, they were busy doing something. They had something else to do while they're waiting that was walking. So there was no more complaints about waiting time. Brothers and sisters, that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about what we do in this in-between times, what we do in this waiting times. And I entitled today's message, Living in Between Already and Not Yet. Living in Between Already and Not Yet. Already but not yet. You know, this phrase of already but not yet is a very important concept in Christian theology. It surely can explain the concept of Advent. In the season of Advent, we are celebrating the already, the first Advent, when Christ came down on earth, right? Which has already happened. But in the meantime, we are preparing and anticipating the second advent, which has not happened yet until Christ's return. We can apply this phrase to explain salvation. Because salvation has already happened, but it's not quite fulfilled yet. That's why Apostle Paul, when he was speak about the salvation, he used three tense, past present, and also future. You see, when we are usually speaking about our salvation, we tend to use the past tense. We were saved. For example, we were saved July 10th, 1996. We were saved during Christian camp. We were saved by a message of a pastor. But Apostle Paul, he said, I have been saved, and I am being saved. Then it also said, one day I shall be saved. So salvation has three tenths. How about sin? Sin has been defeated, but quite not yet fulfilled. I mean, we still battle. I mean, I still battle sin. Jesus Christ said that the kingdom of God is here, but it feels like it's not quite here yet. You only have to watch the news to recognize 
how fragmented this world is. So we are living in this in-between world. My question is, brothers and sisters, what you are doing while you are waiting? What you are doing while you are living in this in-between? Because sometimes it feels like we are, all we are doing is just waiting and waiting and complaining. Are we there yet? Like we are standing in the baggage claim area and we're waiting on God to move, waiting on God to answer our prayers. And today's passage gives us such an utter important lesson on how we should live in this in-between word, in-between times. Now, let's take a look at today's scripture. The scripture today is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I've carried you into exile. This is the word of God. Now, what's interesting is Jeremiah's times were quite a bit like ours. For example, the background for this passage is the fact that the great Babylon power had come to Israel, had invaded, had destroyed Jerusalem, had taken the people of Israel as captive and exiled to Babylon. When the Jewish exiles got to Babylon, they found a huge city. The city was full of hostile and big and brutal and full of idols. It was filled with other exiles. It was filled with all of these different people, groups with a radically different culture or religion or morality or the very nature of the world. How do you respond to this fragmented society? How do you respond to this hostile society? The reason I mention it is that there are perils. We live in a society in which it's getting so that most people in our society also feel like exiles. And Jeremiah sent the prophetic letter of God to the exiles. And verse 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. This is another one of the most famous but most misquoted verses in the Bible, like Philippians 4.13 that we talked about last Sunday. And I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Brothers and sisters, I heard a lot of forced teaching based on this verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. A lot of prosperity gospel preachers, they take this one verse out of the context. 
and preach the prosperity gospel. You see, this is what God said through the prophet of Jeremiah. All you have to is believe in him because he has a plan, will never harm you, but give you prosperity, will give you hope, give you a future. But that's not based on the context. All you have to do is look at the previous verse, okay? If you want to find the real meaning of this Jeremiah 29, 11 and today's passage. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 29 says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, then I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Think about this. God, through the prophet of Jeremiah, has given the promise of his plan, the God's plan, the plans to prosper, plans not to harm, plans to give Israel exile, hope, and a future. But that they have to wait for how many years? 70 years for that happen. Promise of God has already come, already. But it's not quite there yet because they have to wait for 70 years. Already, but not yet. This Israel people, this exiles, they have to learn how to live in this in-between times. And then God gave them practical lessons on how they should live their life in this in-between times. Already, but not yet. Those lessons are found in verses 5 through 7 of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. God says this, Build homes, move in, go right into that city and settle down. Stay there a long time and raise your families and plant gardens. Increase in number, do not decrease. But seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Did you just hear what God said? That wicked city, that terrible city, the city was filled with idols. The city was filled with false gods. And God was to say, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for that city because if that city prospers, you too prosper. It must have been utterly astounding for exile Israelite to hear from God that I want you guys to seek the prosperity and peace of the whole city of city of Babylon. I want you guys to pray for that city. I want you guys to love that city. I want you guys to root for that city, not against it. This doesn't make any sense. How could this be? It's a pagan city. It's a city that was filled with the false god, that was filled with idols. This is also the city destroy the nation of Israel. This is what probably Israel people think. This is a city they put the blood of my brothers and sisters. How in the word that God commanded us to seek out the prosperity and shalom, the peace, and pray for this city and then also work for this city. It only makes sense if you put that in the context of everything that the Bible says about the cities. Where I'm getting this um, is from St. Augustine's great book, The City of God. He read the Bible, 
And he said the Bible tells us the history of the whole world is basically a tale of two cities. The whole history of the world can be summed up as a tale of two cities. The city of man and the city of God. The city of man is characterized by pride and it operates on this basis. The basis of human pride. People go into the human city to make a name for themselves, to get recognition, to get a self, to find the power, achievement, and self-esteem. They said, quote, unquote, then I will know I am somebody. That is the basis for the earthly city. Because that is the basis for earthly city. It is a place of exhaustion and oppression. First, it's a place of exhaustion. People are so tired because they are working so hard to prove themselves. They go to the city needing to get something, needing to get money, needing to get power, needing to get recognition, needing to get a resume, needing to get love, needing to get whatever they come to the city for. Needing to get so, quote unquote, I can feel good about myself. So they are exhausted because of all the work. It's a place of not only exhaustion, but also oppression. It's a place of oppression because people are working so hard to get up the ladder only to step on other people. It's a place of exhaustion and oppression. That is the earthly city. However, in contrast, there is the heavenly city, the city of God. The city of God does not work on the principle of pride, but peace, but love, not on basis of human effort, but God's grace. Because of that, it is not a place of exhaustion, but of joy. Why? The people in the city of God have God's grace, which means they know who they are. So they don't have to come into the city of God looking to get, but looking to give. They already know who they are by God's grace. They are already loved. They already have a self. So it's not a place of exhaustion, but it is a place of joy. It's not a place of oppression. It is a place of justice. Because people don't need to feel good about themselves by feeling superior to other people. So the city of God is a place of joy and justice. Or put another way, the city of man works on this principle. Your life is to benefit me. So I go into the city to get whatever I want. On the other hand, the city of God works on the following principle. My life is to serve you. That's why I come to give whatever I have. So in today's passage, when God says, move into Babylon and seek its peace, the peace of the city of Babylon, according to St. Augustine, it means every human city has both the earthly city and in the city of God. Every city has two cities. So when God says, seek the shalom, peace of the city, by the way, the word shalom translated to peace it's an incredibly rich Hebrew word. It does not mean just what the 
English word peace means. When you think of English word peace, all you are thinking of is stop or a cessation of war or battle or argument, right? Or maybe a kind of inner calm, inner peace. That's not what the Hebrew word shalom means. The shalom in Hebrew word means total flourishing in every dimension. The total flourishing in socially, economically, physically, and spiritually. For example, it first means you have to be at least be working for the social peace of your city. Social peace means it's your job to try to help the different racial group get along and live in harmony. Secondly, you're also supposed to be working for the economic shalom of your city, which means if you are a Christian, just to live your life for you and your family, your group, that's not seeking the economic shalom. Seeking the economic shalom is whatever possession, whatever blessings God has given you. It is to share others. It is to go out and help with your possessions. So your job is to seek the prosperity of the entire city. Your job is to seek the shalom of the whole city. I know that is very difficult and radical concept. Extremely hard to follow. And I'm sad to say, not many Christians, not many churches live like that. But do you know the early Christians actually live like that way? Do you know that in the first couple of centuries, the early Christians lived exactly like that way? Rodney Stark, American sociologist, also historian, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, in which he described the cities of the Greco-Roman Empire in the first couple of centuries, when this horrible disease, plagues, went through. Here is a paraphrase of one eyewitness's description of what the cities were like. Listen to this. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. People became afraid to visit anyone. As a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through the lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and the half-dead man could be seen staggering in the street. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that people became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many people pushed sick people away, even their own dearest family often throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping to avert contagion. And this is what Christian did. Listen to this. Most Christians during that time, the plague showed unbounded love and royalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Regardless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering them in Christ. Many Christians departed their life 
for they were infected by, by their neighbors, but they cheerfully accepted their pains. Here's what's interesting. The Rodney Stark, who is a historian and a sociologist, as his job by nature, he's trying to figure out why. Why, why there are so many religions in the Roman Empire. Why there are so many, many ethnic groups and there are many, many different philosophical groups in that empire. But among all of them, the Christianity became so incredibly popular. Even though it started very small, that eventually overwhelmed the whole city and transformed the entire Roman Empire. Here's what Rodney Stark said. And I quote, when the cities were falling apart, Christians stayed there and took care of people, even at the cost of their own lives. So most of people who survived the plagues only survived the plagues because Christians took care of both Christians and pagans. Rodney Stark says at the end of his chapter that the consequences of all this was that the pagan survivors faced greatly increased odds of conversion after they recovered because of their greatly increased attachment to Christians. You know what this means? When they got better, they look at the Christian and said, wait a minute, what are you here for? You don't seem to be here for money. You don't seem to be here for physical safety. What are you here for? And Christians say, we are not here for anything. We are not afraid of death. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to get ahead. We don't even need to live. We are here for you. We are here for the peace, shalom of the city. We are here for the prosperity of the city. We are here for others. We are operating not on the principle of your life is to benefit me, but my life is here for you. My life here, my life is here to serve you. As a result, by the time AD 300, do you know the most of the cities of the Roman Empire had become Christian? Notice this. Christianity did not capture power by destroying other people, by gaining others' power. They capture power by getting low and serve others. They got influence through absolute service of serving others. My dear brothers and sisters, we learn today that how we should live our life as we are living in this in-between times. Already, but not yet. We know it's not about just waiting and complaining to God. We know it's not about saying, and are we there yet? And are we there yet? But God has given us very clear and practical lesson that we are to seek out the prosperity of this city. We are to seek out the shalom, the whole peace, social peace, economic peace, spiritual peace, and physical peace. Not just for this church, for our family, but the city, city of Somerville, city of Boston. Do you have a heart for this city? Have you been praying for this city? 
Have you been really seeking out shalom for this city? Have you been really going out and help those who are really in need? As the early Christian did, the way they gain power, the way they gain influence is not by showing their own power, but by serving. It's not by getting from other people, but by giving. That's our job. That's what Christians should be doing as we are living in this in-between times. May God bless you and his word. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you.